When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome, everyone, to the show. This is William L. Myers, Jr., and you are listening to Writing Wrongs on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Today, I have the privilege of talking with New York Times best-selling author, Jeffrey Deaver. Jeffrey Deaver's books have been sold and are sold in 150 countries. They've been translated into 25 languages. He's written more than 40 novels three collections of short stories, and even a nonfiction law book. We're going to be talking about the art of writing and Jeffrey Deaver's new book, The Goodbye Man, which is the second book in the Calder Shaw series. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, I think we're going to have a lot of fun, and we're just going to have a conversation um, and just talk about all this stuff. I, I noticed you have a very interesting background former journalist, a folk singer, and even a Wall Street attorney. Do you want to tell us a little <laughs> bit about that and, and how it is you eventually got into writing fiction? The, um, the, I mean, some, some people would say uh, it took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to do, <laughs> but that's not exactly the case. I knew from a very young age that I want, wanted to write, and I, I wanted to write um, commercial fiction, which is what I read when I was a, a little kid. I didn't read children's books. I mean, maybe when I was a baby, I read, you know, little animals and elephants that had wings. I don't remember that. But, but I was reading James Bond pretty early, reading Travis right. McGee, Dashiell Hammett, and uh, Raymond Chandler, of course. And I, I knew I wanted to write that kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, write that kind of uh, story. But the problem is that writers, unlike some other artists, have to live life for um, you know, a fairly lengthy time before they can bring any substance to their books. I imagine Mozart was composing when he was four. I think it was about that age, four or five. And Jackson Pollock probably was spattering paint on canvases at that age, too. But um, you know, a writer doesn't, uh, doesn't start early. Or the ones that do start early sometimes have an unformed voice. So I knew I wanted to live life. And I also wanted luxuries like, you know, room and board and, a, you know, water and a car at some point. So I figured I wasn't, I wasn't going to be a starving artist. So I got into my head to pick careers that may help me with words, with research, with, um, you know, this innate curiosity that I have, and you as a writer as well, I'm sure have, folk singing, uh, well, which I enjoy doing anyway, journalism, because it would teach me how to write, the rules of grammar and punctuation and syntax, which are absolutely vital and which I think are endangered species nowadays. And uh, then law, uh, I, I didn't want to actually practice law, I was going to be a, a reporter covering law, uh, but I ended up, uh, I got pretty good grades, so I, I made some good money on Wall Street, 
Uh, and, but then I quit to write full time. And <laughs> so I, uh, you know, was, I, I was never wealthy, but I was comfortable for a while, but then I decided to, uh, uh, risk it all on uh, writing, and that was 30 years ago. So I guess the risk paid off. Yeah, I, I think I read somewhere that you spent a lot of time writing on your commute to and from Wall Street. Yeah, two hours each way. And um, I had one of the first laptop computers ever available. Now, this is a long time ago, mm-hmm. and it was a novelty then. It was made by the NEC company, stood for Nippon Electronics. Right. <clears throat> I don't know if they're still around. And, um, you know, they called it a laptop, but and it did fit on my lap. But, you know, you could also take like a block of concrete and put that on your lap and call it a laptop <laughs> block of concrete. It, 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 you know, it would, my circulation was gone if I didn't pay attention. And I had to hobble off the train from time to time. But, uh, yeah, I, I used that time uh, productively and wrote uh, probably three or four books uh, before I uh, then changed my lifestyle and moved uh, into the, the city itself. Wow, that's that's impressive. Now, I also saw that you were, and I don't know if you still do this, but that you, you've written folk songs and you sing and perform them as well. I don't uh, sing and perform anymore. Uh, you know, with the uh, getting up in age, uh, I had some arthritis issues, so I can't really do the, the tunes on the guitar. And I was never a great vocalist, but I did enjoy writing lyrics. And um, about uh, four, four or five years ago, I wrote a book called XO, as in Hugs and Kisses, about a, a country western singer who was being stalked by a fan. And I, I, I got it into my head, well, here's an opportunity to put my songwriting skills, such as they are, to work. And I teamed up with a production company in uh, in Nashville, and we did an album oh, wow. of um, songs that I had written. And they, they, did, they wrote the music, and uh, we hired a singer, a very uh, talented country western uh, singer, to uh, cut the album, and we uh, we were up for some awards, and we're you know we're on Spotify and Pandora and all those places. Uh, and if you're uh, you know your listeners are interested, they can just Google or go to YouTube and type in Deaver, and uh, the the hit song was uh, Your Shadow. So type those while you are shadow, yeah, and uh, you'll be able to uh, hear the um, see the video of. Uh, now I, this is the singer who was in the video, and. Uh, yeah, it did. Uh, it did well, and the songs had clues as to who the real killer was in the book. So if you listen to the, uh-huh. the lyrics, you could you could figure out, oh wait, maybe the guy we think is the bad guy isn't the bad guy. So uh, that was fun to do. But then they stand alone. It was kind of fun to do. That that's really neat. Now let me ask you this: You were a Wall Street attorney and you were a journalist. What did you bring to your fiction writing? from those two professional professions, whether it was a skill set or a way of approaching <laughs> writing or whatever, what did you bring with you? A uh, very good, very good question. And it, it um, touches on both of the elements you, you mentioned, uh, the skill set um, being a journalist, I went to the university of Missouri <clears throat> journalism school, and we could not graduate unless we uh, basically memorized a book called Elements of Style by Strunk and White. Right, right. Uh, E.B. White, of course, being the great New Yorker writer. And um, that taught me that um, language is about clear communication. Now, I'm not a great stylist. Uh, Look at writers like Annie Prue, who wrote The uh, Shipping News, or um, David Foster Wallace, who wrote Infinite Jest, uh, Cormac McCarthy. Now, those are great stylists. I, I don't have that within me. And when I try to do that, try to write in a very 
uh, um, you know, pyrotechnic way, it doesn't work. Um, so the journalism school taught me writing is about communication. So my books are aimed at clear, simple um, understanding of the scenario that I've created. And that includes picturing the scene, picturing the characters, hearing the characters. And so the, the journalism really helped me there. <clears throat> it also helped me with research uh, because you have to dig to get the uh, answers to the questions that are going to be raised in the story. So uh, journalism uh, w- was very helpful there. The law, um, I will say that that was a writing element too, because the style and legal documents and briefs has to be uh, extremely clear. There can be no ambiguity, but more important, the practice of law taught me, taught me to plan ahead. Whatever we see in um, LA law, or Boston Legal or the movies, uh, there are very, very few surprises in the courtroom or when you're doing a business deal. Right, right. Everything is planned out, <clears throat> excuse me, everything is planned out and outlined ahead of time. Well, that's what I do with my books. I plan them out for about eight months. The Goodbye Man, the outline is, I would guess, uh, 140 pages or so. And that is um, the uh, just the key document when you're going to write a book, you need to plan it out ahead of time. Some people don't feel, feel this way. I know Stephen King doesn't outline right, Michael Connelly right. doesn't outline great writers. You know, they, they, they just, that's their, their choice. I think for most people though, <clears throat> rather than just uh, starting with a blank page and, and, and getting going, it's much more efficient and it's easier to write. If you take some time and plan it out ahead of time. When you, when you write, when you start this process of creating this, this Bible, do you focus on plot points, turning points, or, or do you include things like, oh, here, I want this line of dialogue. I want this scene. This will be really fun if I can incorporate this. Well, it, it has to, it, when you say fun, it has to serve the, the plot. I'm a very plot-driven author. I have lots of reversals and twists and turns in my books, and that's what the outline does. And so, yes, by the end of the day, the um, the end of the eight months, uh, to be more accurate, the outline has everything in it. Every reversal, uh, I, I mean, I say every, it's, you know, it's 92% there. I'll, I'll make changes when I do the actual writing, but in general, it's got everything in there, where the characters are introduced, where they leave, either alive or dead, uh, where, very important, the clues go into the story, so that at the end, when there's a big surprise, Mm-hmm. And so-and-so turns out to be somebody we didn't expect. The readers will think, you know what? In um, Chapter 3, that character did have an interest in disguises and makeup. Uh, that's, oh, okay, I get it now. Because you have to play fair. You can't, you can't cheat. Readers don't like it when you have a, a twist that comes out of left field. So the outline does all of that and uh, lets me look at the whole schematic of the book and make sure I don't have two exciting scenes next to each other. We need to, mm-hmm. you know, inter- intersperse those. And then it also shows me where I raise the questions and answer them. Will the, the hero <clears throat> find the particular weapon he needs to defeat the bad guy? Because it's gone missing, it was stolen in Chapter 7. Well, in Chapter 32, uh, we, don't, we don't know it, but he's been looking for that weapon all along. And then, bang, he finds it, and um, he does manage to defeat the uh, the bad guy, but only it, by doing that in an outline form can I figure out the best time to 
to put those elements in to give the book the most emotional impact. Got you. So let me ask you this. It sounds like you are a very disciplined writer. Um, I'm a current lawyer. You were a former lawyer, and I know what it means to be a disciplined writer. How, How much of the plotting comes when you're sitting there consciously trying to create a plan? How much of it comes to you when you're not sitting there with the paper in front of you or the computer in front of you and an idea just appears in your head like oh my god this is this is a, going to be a big reversal and it seems like it comes from out of nowhere does does that happen at all for you jeffrey oh yes <clears throat> yes all, all the time i would say sitting down staring at my uh, post-it notes or um maybe um uh working on the computer if i move from the wall to the computer i input the uh plot points i'll um jump back and forth, look up and down. Okay, move this here. No, I, I, can I, I don't know if can I have that scene in number 17. We haven't met the character yet. It's got to move down to 27. I'll do that. Um, and then I just keep doing it hour after hour. I look at it, move this here. Okay, that's good. Uh, but then I'm driving out driving or out even with friends. Well, I'm not doing that right at the moment uh, because of the uh, quarantine. But I, um, I will think, uh, oh, wait. He, he, my hero should have done this five years ago or sometime in the past. That right. explains his interest in the subject now. And who knows where that comes from? I, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky, probably like you as well, as a, a successful writer. The, there's a magic about it that I, I can't explain. And it's, it's, I, I put it down to the imagination. I mean, I don't believe in anything spiritual at all. I don't think it's a muse. I think our mind works in a very odd way and that, even when we're not consciously thinking of something, we are subconsciously thinking of that topic. And usually for me, it's the plot. And suddenly something will bubble up, and it's a solution to a problem that I might not even have known I had. Or more likely, it's a problem I was wrestling with and I couldn't find the answer to it, but then it appears. And that happens, happens with some frequency. You know, I, I, I always ask authors whether they bring – you know, real life experiences like prior, um, you know, prior professions into their writing. I'm going to turn that on my head or on its head. And let me ask you this. Have you learned things from being a writer that you've brought into your, into your real life, your life outside the books that's enriched your life? Well, it's a, that is an excellent question. I think in, in the, uh, you know, roughly 35 years I've been writing and the thousands of interviews I've done, uh, I don't believe I've ever been uh, ever been asked that. Uh, aside from the obvious, that I, I think there is a um, meticulous approach that one needs to take to uh, create a product, and a book is a product. You know, it's it's an assembly line product in a way because we authors are both. Uh, the uh, you know the the concept designers of a product, and we are the line workers, and frankly, we're also the you know the marketing and advertising people for our product. So nothing wrong with calling a book a a product, but I think that has I've taken away from that that it is a very efficient way to uh, run your life if you treat it like writing a book the way I do, at least. Now, I'll give you an example of this. With the virus going around now, my uh, business uh, firm 
And I like like many uh, you know small business people have a company that is an accountant. They handle all my files and government filings and things like that. Well, they had a um, uh, were hit hard. They were in New York City, and I don't think they had you know, uh, any fatalities, thank God. But uh, I think some people got sick. They closed the office entirely, moved people to remote offices, and they had to lay off some people, uh, quite unfortunately. Well, that meant that um, the uh, I, I have a, a kind of a busy, complicated life, having you know contracts and agreements with publishers all over the world. And, um, you know, government stuff, I own some property, and suddenly there was this huge tide of things that were building up, and I didn't know how to get rid of them. And I thought, I, I can't say I thought, right. well, how would I approach this if I were writing a book? But uh, without thinking that, I did approach it, how I wrote a book. I, I stepped back and said, I need an organized system here to right. get everything in order and then to get all that information to the new accountant, whoever it was, in an organized form. So I did basically an outline of my um, – my life and set it to the uh, new accountant and things are kind of turning around now. Oh, wow. Well, that's great. That's, that's very helpful. Um, what I want to do now is I want to talk about the book that it just came out, the goodbye man. And um, mm-hmm. for the readers who don't know, this is the second book in the Colter Shaw series. The first book was the never game. Tell us a little bit about the protagonist Colter Shaw. <clears throat> I once heard there were two types of stories, two prototypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, this, this story varies depending on whom you're talking to. But uh, somebody said, well, another seven types of stories or the 12 types of stories. And I, I suppose that's true. But I, I prefer the idea that there are two uh, types of stories that engage readers. One is somebody goes on a quest. And that would be Lord of the Rings. And the other is a stranger comes to town. Uh, that could be told either from the stranger's point of view or from the um, uh, from the uh, town, let's say the townspeople's point of view, or the destination's point of view, and the classic example of that is the wonderful film and book by Jack Schaefer uh, named Shane. Uh, th- that was the movie in the fifties, my in my era. Uh, Alan Ladd Jr. starred in it about the gunslinger who comes to town and gets involved in the uh, war between the the nice uh, settlers, the farmers, and the bad. Uh, cattle baron, a landowner, and um, and, and, and so I, I always love that that prototype of the, um, uh, the this mysterious figure coming into town, getting involved in a, uh, a conflict, uh, solving it or helping to solve it, and then riding off into the sunset for other adventures. Because for one thing, it's got sequel written all over it, and you as a writer know we always want more books rather than fewer books. So. <laughs> right. um, uh, so uh, I, I thought, well, who should I pick? Well, I, I ran through a lot of ideas, but I happened to have read about a reward that was being offered by the State Department for millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, uh, for information leading to the location of a ter- particular terrorist uh, whose name I don't recall, somewhere in the Middle East. <clears throat> I thought, well, I, I couldn't imagine that. The government's going to pay $25 million for um, uh, information leading to this guy's uh, capture well why why wouldn't somebody uh do that well basically what I, why wouldn't somebody write a uh, a thriller about trying to find this guy and then i thought you know that would be a one time book and you know frankly uh fundamentalist religious fundamentalist terrorism is uh been there and done that and frankly i personally feel that these people as villains are uh, 
they're like rocks. I mean, it's like an avalanche. There's nothing right. compelling about them. Their arguments don't make any sense. I just thought, um, no, I, I, that was you know, like used chewing gum. And even when it had been real chewing gum, it didn't have much flavor to it. So I, um, I thought, but the reward idea I like. So I looked into that a bit and found that there are thousands of rewards available if you, if you look for them, up to hundreds of thousands of dollars within the U.S. And it generally it's for, um, you know, escaped fugitives. It's for suspects in murders, bank robberies, kidnappings who cannot be located by the police. And it's for um, missing uh, family members of uh, civilians. So the government isn't offering a reward for that. It's the people putting up money themselves. Right. And um, I thought, well, now what if somebody were to make a living pursuing that? Not bail bondsmen. You know, bail bondsmen, right, if somebody right. jumps bail, they uh, the, the, these guys track them down. And that, that's kind of a lower-class lower, lower class criminal, No, nothing interesting, because the real good criminals, smart ones, the kinds that I put in my books, either they're, um, uh, they're not going to be – uh, arrested, or if they are arrested, the bond is not going to be set. They won't. They won't be allowed to get out on bond, and uh, and even if they do, they're not going to jump bond because they're not that kind of criminal. So he was a bail bondsman uh, agent, but um, so I made up the career of going around getting rewards, and that's what Coulter Shaw does. He jumps in his uh, Winnebago like uh, Alan Ladd Jr. jumped on his horse and rode uh, into town and uh, looked for the reward, and then. Uh, ideally saves the day, then jumps in his Winnebago at the end of the story and moves on. Yeah, and uh, he calls himself a professional reward seeker. Um, but he's also a a self-professed restless man. Tell me, tell me what that mm-hmm. means and what it tells us about um, his personality. Um, Coulter Shaw grew up in a very unusual family. His father, Ashton Shaw, was a, a brilliant professor at an unnamed university, but it's really UC um, Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley. Um, and his mother, Coulter Shaw's mother, Mary Dove, was a brilliant uh, researcher and psychiatrist. Um, and suddenly, when Coulter Shaw was about six years old, had a younger sister and an older brother, uh, the family fled the Bay Area and moved to the Sierra Nevadas onto a compound. And Ashton Shaw became a survivalist for reasons that will ultimately be revealed in the Coulter Shaw series. And he, he turned the kids into survivalists. Now, there are different types of survivalists. There are the wacko, dangerous survivalists, who are uh, many times racists and uh, are uh, you know, convinced uh, there's going to be a terrible revolution and are, are arming themselves and making weapons and fortresses, basically. Um, and, and, you know, they believe things like uh, aliens from outer space are coming to get us. Uh, but then there are normal people who simply are not comfortable living on the grid, or at least as much on the grid as most of us do. I mean, I'm looking at my desk now. I see two cell phones. Well, frankly, I see one cell phone because I'm on the other one. Um, I see <laughs> uh, two computers. I see uh, two routers. And... Um, you know, that's that's our life. Well, some people choose to, to live a slightly different way and get back to the land. And they, they, they care about their family. They care about their family's safety because there could be something arise that could, you know, devastate uh, the traditional lifestyle uh, that we've lived for uh, in the modern era. Look at the pandemic right now, for instance. There's, um, and there are some survivalists who 
may be thinking, well, I told you so. You know, they didn't have to go out like I did and buy uh, cases and cases of food to live on, on for a month. And so, um, uh, Col- but Coulter Shaw has that uh, backstory within him, what happened with his father and these uh, individuals uh, who may have been involved and uh, this is not giving anything away. His father died before the opening of the Never Game. Uh, maybe the individuals who might have been involved in his death are after Coulter Shaw and the rest of the family now. And I, I reveal that little by little. I mean, it's like peeling an onion. These plots are slowly being revealed. Yeah, and I noticed that there's a, there's a, a reference, um, a teaser to a, a treasure his father left him. Um, and that whetted my appetite to find out what, what that was about. Um, in, in The Goodbye Man, uh, we know that, uh, well, I know that Coulter starts out tracking two men accused of hate crimes. But mm-hmm. things don't turn out as simply as he thinks they are. Why don't you just give us a little taste of the plot of, of sure. without reveals of what's going to happen in The Goodbye Man, sure. what kind of challenges he's going to face, who he's going to face off against, things like that. Sure. And I'll make it brief. I, I know we don't have too much time to chat, but I'll make it very brief. So uh, a Deaver story is never linear. It's never a straight road. So what happens is he goes after these two uh, apparently despicable human beings who shot some folks at a church. And, and what happens? This convoluted path leads him to an organization in the wilderness of Washington, D.C. that might or might not be a cult. So he goes undercover in the cult, specifically to save somebody he thinks is imperiled in the cult. And uh, from there, nothing seems to be what it is. And uh, a a lot of people we think we like maybe aren't so nice, and then there are a lot of people that we dislike who um, uh, turn out to be the good guys. I know that um, he has a kind of a nemesis that he has a history with named Dalton Crow, who seems to be exactly the opposite of Coulter Shaw. Why don't you you give us a little taste of what his relationship is like with Dalton Crow? Sure. Uh, Now, now, Bill, I do have to say um, I've got another event that's actually starting right now on Skype. So um, um, do we have anything we want to wind up with in general? Do you have like a general fast uh, final question? Um, well, why don't we just do this? Um, I'll tell people again that you're listening to writer, Writing Wrongs on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I've been talking to Jeffrey Deaver about his writing and about his book, The Goodbye Man. Jeff, why don't you tell your listeners um, your social media credentials and where they can buy your books? Sure. Uh, JeffreyDeaver.com will post you, uh, keep you posted on everything that's going on. And I'm also on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and I have a wonderful person who handles that because I can't figure out this electronic stuff, but I'll learn it someday. <laughs> so, uh, And the book is available wherever you buy your books. And remember, support those independent bookshops if you can. Thank you, Jeffrey. And again, this is William L. Myers, Jr. You can find me at www.williamlmyersjr.com. My books are on Amazon. And we've been talking with Jeffrey Deaver. Jeffrey, thank you.